So, hey everyone, today on How I Scale My Team, we're really happy to host Nicholas Contopoulos, Twilio's VP Marketing for Asia Pacific and Japan. He has a very interesting career path,、uh, which we'll hear about soon, and he lives in Singapore.、Uh, and honestly, it has been a chase to get him on the show, so I'm really, really happy he found the time to be with us. So, hey Nicholas, and of course, hey Shahal. Hey Romy, hey Nicholas. Hey there. Great to have you here. What time is it in Singapore now? Hi there, thanks for having me. Oh, it's,、uh, oh, God, what is it? It feels like the day's gone past like a blur. It's、uh, coming up to 4 30. So it's 4 18 at the moment、uh, in the afternoon.、So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Great to have you here.、Um, and, you know, thanks for taking the time being with us.、Uh, in short, I would love to kind of get your background,、uh, you know, what you've been up to so far. What got you into your current role and what got you into Singapore, generally speaking? Yeah, no worries.、Um, oh, so my background's a little bit of a, A different one. I, I, I was originally from Australia, half Greek, half Australian. So my father was a chef, my mother was a waitress, and I'm a byproduct of that.、Um, uh, there, in, there's a story there. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, dig- yeah. digressing and kind of asking <laughs> which type of cooking you guys do at home. But yeah, well, he was a seafood chef. So I grew up for,、uh, with great seafood all my life.、Um, but yeah, I, I think because of my father's travels,、uh, he, he cooked all over the world. He always talked about the stories. He, Shared stories with us. I always had an interest in travel. So in 1998, I did what a lot of Aussies do、uh, pick up sticks, as we say, and, and went backpacking and、uh, toured around Europe for about 18 months and,、uh, and then settled in London for what became a 12 year stint.、Hmm. Um, and、uh, my background was financial services before leaving、uh, Australia and then moved into legal services, into business process outsourcing. That sort of saw me gravitate towards technology. And、uh, did a short,、uh, short stint of 10 years with SAP that took me from、um, s-、uh, London to Shanghai and then down to Singapore, which is where I'm based now. So, been in Singapore 10 years and since then moved across a couple of companies. So, went through to Magento, who was an e commerce vendor, and then that got acquired by Adobe and did four years at Adobe. I'm heading up their growth marketing for the DX business and、uh, recently joined Twilio,、um, maybe about I mean, about six weeks in, yeah, so into a new job. So, really exciting. I would love to, to dive into that, but、um, I'll take you back for a second because you said you, you spent、uh, a short stint at SAP. When you say short, what do you mean? How short was it? 10 years. <laughs> so, <laughs> 10, 10 years short. Yeah.、Uh, yeah. So, It's a and, lifetime and this, now. <laughs> it is, yeah. yeah.、Um, so, 10 years at SAP、uh, in its golden age, right? If, if I go back, and,、um, by the、yes. way, SAP. Um, just yesterday, my, my、uh, sister in law is、uh, SAP's COO for their Israeli lab. And I just saw, I was in her home yesterday and they have all these flags. I think SAP is celebrating like 50 years now. So it's, it's a veteran,、yeah. right? Twilio is a startup company compared to, to the SAP exactly. and, its, and its legacy.、Um, so you went from SAP into smaller companies. Again, even Adobe is far smaller than SAP and then Magento and Twilio. It's like that's, that's a transition. We'd love to hear kind of what, what led you down that path. I never planned to come into technology actually.、Uh, so, if I talk about how I got into SAP, was really、um, through、uh, being a、uh, consumer of technology and, and ultimately being、um, you know, brought into a lot of projects through IT departments. I was in a sales background. My background is actually pretty much sales、uh, for the majority of my career. You know, CRM back when it, in its heyday when it first took off, you know, think Siebel, think Act, Goldmine, all those t- early pioneers in CRM. I was an early, an early adopter of those. And actually, I was an actual user of I was a rare Salesforce guy who actually used the technology. So, IT departments were always quite keen to get my perspective on what were they doing wrong when it came to rollouts. And what I learned was that 
that most technology programs that were successful brought people process technology together. So that I then moved, I was into, I then moved into business process outsourcing, which then saw me go into SAP through that 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 route, mainly because we were using their solutions for our um, our, our our outsourcing contracts, and uh, that's why I just got interested in technology. Um, great company, had great ten years there, but why I went to Magento was for a lot of the reasons was because it was a smaller company. It was a it was a new challenge for me. There were roughly about a thousand employees around there. It might have even be eight hundred employees actually. Thinking back, um, and yeah, they were opening up their market here in um, Asia for the first time in the sense of putting an office here. So that was a real attraction to me. Um, then we got acquired by Adobe, um, which enabled me to transition into into Adobe and and had the great privilege of there helping bring two acquisitions together from a marketing perspective, which was the Magento and Marketo acquisitions. They came together at the same time and we created a, a growth business there. Um, and what drew me to Twilio was really um, Jeff, the CEO. He's a founder um, you know, of the company. He's running the business. He's got a fantastic vision. Um, for me, um, you know, how I make a selection when it comes to a company is very much about the people and, and the values that they has. And you know what their why is. I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek's work, and they really get excited about helping customers build um, their future through technology, enabling that. You know, and so really um, enjoying my time already at uh, Twilio. It's a fantastic company, and it's a bit of a rocket ship, actually. I've got to say, you know, in terms of how it's been growing. So lots of exciting uh, work to do, um, and, and looking forward to it. But that's a quick walkthrough, sort of how I came into <laughs> current role. No, it's awesome. Uh, it's exactly what uh, what I wanted to, to learn. And so, um, you know, obviously SAP, uh, um, Magento, Adobe, you ran large teams, you kind of penetrated, built, created new markets uh, within uh, within Asia-Pac um, during your period there. If, if you think about how you built your teams within these organizations and emerged into the market, um, maybe you can share with us what it takes in order to really make it work and build a new team uh, in a new almost a new brand in, in a region and what you took from, you know, your tenure at SAP, then Magento, Adobe, and again, Twilio's early days, but um, how do you build teams? I've been very lucky in the sense that I've been operating in a market like Asia, which is it's just so dynamic and constantly moving. And it's something that really attracts me. Um, and, and But in order to be successful, you, you do need to build out uh, a really agile business model, yeah, um, because it's so fast-paced. And if you look at the, the the diversity of the markets, you know, you go from somewhere like Australia, which is quite mature, out to Cambodia or Vietnam, where there's less maturity. You know, you need to build a, an organizational structure that's really flexible and agile in that respect. So that's part of what attracts me to this region in particular. And the roles I've had, as you've touched on, have each of them given me the opportunity to look, really look at either building from scratch or bringing existing teams together and then scaling them up. Some of the key ingredients for me there really is, um, first and foremost, trying to create that right culture at the start, starting point. Hopefully there's already an existing culture there that you, you can build around and, and, and utilize. But, you know, Peter Drucker said, you know, culture eats strategy for lunch. And I think that's a really critical component, creating the right culture or nurturing the existing culture and ultimately you know evolving that so that you can build a, a team that will hopefully move in the direction that you ideally need to move in that then leads to me in terms of the key key other area that i look at is you know making sure there's a 
a real clear purpose for the business, yeah? Um, and for us as individuals, as a team, I think that's actually talked about a lot, but not understood um, and often misunderstood in terms of how to apply it. So, I mean, quite simply put for me, the purpose as a marketer is to help the people behind the brands get better at what they do. It's as simple as that. That's really sort of the core purpose that sort of drives me on a professional level is I really genuinely want to help those that I'm engaging with get better at what they do and become agents of change. So I think having a clear purpose that you can anchor the team around like that is also really important. I've been in the business uh, uh, 20 years now. Uh, I worked for a bunch of companies, uh, super successful. Some were just successful, not super successful. Um, and uh, one thing that I, I think I saw with all these organizations, almost all of them uh, fail or at least have a significantly hard time succeeding in APAC. And I think you touched on a point that really uh, triggered a nerve. At the end of the day, most companies are kind of saying, well, APAC is a huge market. Obviously, we want to have a part of it. And they go in and they fail. And you said, you know, um, culture eats breakfast for lunch. I completely agree. Uh, but most organizations don't know how to manage their APAC culture. It's not like building a business in France or uh, in the U.S. Or it's like it's, it's completely different. And they don't recognize that. So... What does that mean, creating a culture in a, uh, a European brand, an American brand in APAC? I think being successful here, it's not too different to being successful in Europe. There are, there are a lot of similarities between Europe and Asia. I've, I've run teams in both um, in the sense that you've got those sort of diversity of culture, diversity of language, um, you know, geography, all of that uh, at play. Some of what I will speak to will you translate for European brands that are coming out here if they obviously still need to adapt what they know and really take the time to understand the markets they're moving into. Um, but that I would imagine for European brands, that's a lot easier typically than say a North American brand potentially. Yeah, that's tip, tip, typically comes over here. I think for a lot of the US centric companies, uh, they've historically sort of, again, sort of cut and paste type of approach to how they operate. Um, and that just doesn't work um, at all. I mean, there are markets where you can get away with some of that, you know, whether it's Southeast Asia, you can bring in, you know, because of English is more readily consumed there, um, you know, Singapore, Malaysia, Philippines, those markets. But still, if you really want to set yourself out as a, a brand that connects, you need to localize and, you know, and, and tra have a trans-creation policy. I think this is an, an area that's often overlooked. They'll, people look at translation and localization, but they don't really think about trans-creation in the sense of how do you take your message and really um, deliver that into a local market? That's certainly not something I'm suggesting I've perfected, but it's at least appreciated and understood. And I think that's a key thing that needs to happen. It's a mindset, really. It's a mindset. Like most things, if you come with the right mindset, an open mindset, one that's willing to learn um, and really respect the cultures you're moving into uh, and understand the differences. That I think that straight away gives you a, you know, an edge in terms of your ability to operate. Don't underestimate the, the differences between the cultures. Again, I think um, the way a Chinese consumer or B2B professional engages with you will be very different to that of a, of a, of a Thai uh, consumer or that of a Malaysian. So there's a very there's a quite a broad difference in in that respect, and I think that's often under underappreciated, in in particular with North Asia, you know, Japan, Korea, and China. Those markets are uh, very unique markets and have to have quite dedicated sort of go-to-market strategies, unique to their markets. 
So two questions. One would be like continuing this, how would that portray for you um, in hiring? Does that mean hiring people from that area uh, of geography? Would that mean, uh, you know, a lot of companies bring, um, you know, high ranked executives, C-level from the HQ, bring them or, you know, make them go to that area. um, And sometimes it fails, as we just talked about, um, because the culture fit is not correct, because they don't come with the sense of feeling uh, the consumer um, at that market. So how do you see it in, in, in the hiring perspective of building the team that you are just doing right now? Well, obviously, I'm a Westerner operating in Asia, so it can succeed if you hire the right folks to um, that have the right mindset. You know, I've been to 65 countries in my life. You know, I've, uh, I've had, uh, you know, I think if you can hire people that have had that sort of background where they've thrown themselves into different sort of environments and, and thrived, I think that's important. Um, but also hiring locally is critical as well. I'm a big, uh, most of my team that I hire and tend to hire in this region are, are local from the markets. Um, you know, it doesn't mean I exclusively do that um, because I do believe in that sort of diversity of hiring in terms of, in the broader sense, both in terms of how it's currently defined, but also in terms of thinking is really important, diversity of thinking, and that's really important. Um, but yeah, I tend to look at trying to hire locally because clearly if you hire someone who's from that market and has the the capabilities you need, they've got a uh, you know, finger on the pulse straight, straight away out of the gate in terms of what's required. So I think there's a lot more brands realizing that as well. So you know, the days of just bringing a whole bunch of expats in, I think are, are long gone. I think um, you know, hiring talent, but also, again, I'm a big uh, champion of also taking local talent and pushing them into other parts of the world, like saying, you know, giving the opportunities to go and work in New York and London, because I think that helps round them out also as professionals in their careers. So that's something I like to try to encourage as well. I want to come back to the purpose, because I'll tell you what, when everything moves really fast and Shahar experienced it this year, I experienced it this year, um, when the purpose is clear and everybody has the, their mission and, and, and you know, what they're driving towards, it's, it's easier. People are engaged. People are there. People are putting, you know, time, money, effort, uh, enthusi- enthusiasm, like everything is there. But sometimes... The purpose kind of drifts away and, and it's, it's, you know, you sometimes wake up in the morning and say, why am I doing this for? Or like, what's the end goal? Or what's the end result? And I'm really interested to hear from you, um, leadership manager perspective. How do you keep people feeling this purpose? You know, because it, it's hard to keep it um, long term. A hundred percent, especially in a disconnected environment like we were for the last two years, right? Exactly. Um, historically, you could get together, you go out and do your team outings. Like next week, I've got the whole team flying into Singapore. We're doing our first team gathering. Um, we're running a three-day workshop. That helps, obviously, significantly. But what happens when they go back to their offices? I mightn't see them for another six to nine months as a, as a complete team. So I think communications is such an important part of the mix here. This is certainly a lesson I've learned and a mistake I've made is, you know, in the past is maybe not staying as connected as I needed to be with, with my team and ensuring that my managers are also doing the same, creating that sort of ecosystem uh, type of environment um, where everyone's sort of connected. I love the idea of skip levels now. That's something I've instituted into my practice. My previous boss did that. I always thought it was quite quite cool that he was investing his time with you know the young ones that are in the team and giving them airtime. So that's something I've uh, incorporating in and again encouraging with and will encourage with my managers once they have their own reports, um, you know, second line managers as well or third line, you know, that, that, that way you got that sort of connective tissue being built around the team. 
another thing, I'm an extrovert, okay? Talking comes easily to me. I'm I'm natural uh, talker, yeah? I think you guys will have figured that out by now. But in terms of um, a skill that I have yet to master, I'm always working on is listening, you know, really listening, yeah? Um, as a marketer, it's so important. We need to listen to our customers, but we need to listen to our employees, yeah? Um, and really keep the finger on the pulse there. And that's something I try, I'm you know, always trying to do is really listen to what's being said to me so that I can, you know, act where needed to in order to address a, maybe an emerging problem, attention point in the team, et cetera. So those are some thoughts on, on sort of how I go about keeping that sort of connective tissue going is keep that, make sure we've got those open lines of communication. And really also when I'm talk, when I am connecting that I try, try my best to listen to what's being said to me. Yeah. It is really, um, really important to think about this often, you know, and, and to, to really um, revisit some of these concepts or ideas that we hear about and actually, you know, make sure we, are we actually putting them into practice, yeah? Because that's, you know, build it as a muscle into, to a, into a practice so that it's a, it's a muscle, second nature. The really good leaders do that, yeah? And so if you think about this and, you know, you're kind of looking into how are you hiring new individuals into this organization, into this culture you're creating, into this uh, mentality? Uh, what is it you're looking for? And how do you qualify that they actually have a fit to the culture you've created? It's a good question. And it's one I think a lot about, yeah, because um, obviously you've got your CV, yeah, where have they worked at before? But I don't, again, I if I look at my own career, I've been a bit of a journeyman in my career, yeah, so... I um, don't always look for people that have just done the tier one company journey, yeah, um, or the Ivy League's universities. I didn't go to university. I came out of high school and went straight into into work. So what I try to look at is the individual, you know, the individual. What are they bringing to the table? You know, I, I want to hear what they're saying. When they talk about their, their past work, you know, I really want to understand what makes them tick as an individual. And, and also what I look for, it might sound a bit odd, but are they going to be likable is this someone who's going to be um get on in the team yeah this is really important to me about the team culture are they going to um augment the team nicely in terms of bring a different perspective a different mindset that's going to complement the team are they going to be someone who really is respectful of their peers and and gets excited by others creating and and succeeding you know to me that's really important i don't really think in terms of hierarchies i'm I'm a big um, fan of trying to keep a, a sort of a flat structure in terms of the way we look at things and really look at how more in terms of ecosystems, yeah, and how how is this person going to plug into that ecosystem and complement the ecosystem, both within their team that they're working with on a database basis, but also the extended teams. Because I, again, in the larger companies, you're working in a matrix structure, right? So you've got all these different stakeholders you've got to work with. So really looking at their, their likability is quite an important factor. Assuming that you've got a competent and really good HR team, which I have have had and ha- and do have, they're gonna get, they are gonna bring you a talent, you know, a set of candidates that, you know, meet a lot of the core requirements that you're looking for. So then it becomes more of a question about is this someone gonna fit in? Then what I do is bring my team into the interview process. So I'm looking at them as more of a cultural fit. You know, have they got the core competencies? Of course, I look at those. But then I have my teams that have got core skill sets in a particular area that then take a deeper dive into that specific area that we want them to fit into. So if I'm looking for a marketing automation specialist, I'll have my team who's competent in that area to to take a deeper dive in terms of their core capabilities. But really, I'm looking at, is this someone going to complement the team from a cultural perspective? If they say, 
we don't think he will be a good fit, but on paper, he's amazing. He's great. He's talented. You think he's super fit for the, for the job and the team, do they have kind of a veto or, or who, who kind of says the last word on it? I would say that they're in, Inputs would definitely have a significant impact, and it could mean that that person doesn't move forward 100%. Um, and it, and it, you know, there's always exceptions there. Like you might make a judgment call based on the area. They may be interviewing someone who that for, for a, a role that they don't themselves have a lot of experience in, and you've got to make a gut call in that respect. But if it's about cultural fit, they have a, a very loud voice there 100%. If there's some concerns there, if it's about core competencies, And if that individual isn't a subject matter expert themselves in that area, that's where I might make a judgment call and, and take a little bit more of a punt. And I've done that and seen that pay off because the individual had the right mindset, landed, and was able to you know, fill in any gaps. Because let's be honest, every job we take, there's always going to be a gap in our knowledge. It's an, that's part of the excitement of taking on a new job, right? <laughs> you know, you're not going to be a perfect fit. So that's the key I'm looking for. Is this someone who's got the right core competencies, the right mindset? Um, and the right cultural fit. And if they've got the right mindset, nine times out of 10, they'll plug any gaps that they do have. Uh, I was talking to Romy earlier, and one of the things that we're seeing happening in the markets over the last three, four months is kind of impacting organization. As a leader of an organization or a complete region, uh, I'm sure you guys are facing it as well. I mean, Twilio uh, is going through a similar uh, situation like most tech companies today, and it's been, uh, the stock has been hammered. Uh, we're, we're at Fiverr as well. This is not Twilio. It's, it's, it's an industry-wide. How do you handle the communication with your organization as they're looking and kind of asking, it's like, what, what's wrong with this picture? I went in, I thought, it's like, I'm going to, there's equity involved. And now, generally speaking, most tech stocks are kind of spiraling down. How do you handle culture, commitment, passion uh, in light of these changes? As you pointed out, it is a general market um, challenge. Yeah. So, All tech companies are in the same boat at the moment and therefore in some respects that helps significantly and deal with that type of concern especially with younger ones it's like you know you you talk to me you say well look you look right across you know all the big companies they're all in the same boat at the moment um, and then my advice to them is it should be the long game anyway if you're coming in and Um, working with a company, you should tr always look at that with at least a three to four year horizon in terms of being in that role. Because to be honest, anything under that, you're not really able to move the needle, right? Let's be honest. I mean, going into a company and leaving in two years time or less, you haven't really made a significant impact. Very, very unlikely to. I'm not impossible, but very unlikely to make a significant impact. I'm looking at the long haul here in terms of what the upside is. Um, For every dip, there's an up. Yeah, I mean, we're in a dip now, but there will be an up 100%, you know. And uh, and again, what we're focusing on as a team is looking at how we can accelerate our company's ability to come out of that dip in, a, in front of foot, which is is certainly where Jeff's taking us as a business. I need to ask something, Nicholas, because I'm not going to be, um, we're going to get off the call. I'm going to say, ah, I didn't ask him this and, and I have to kind of slip it in real quick. Um, you know, I've been hearing what, like the way you speak about things and, and um, the thoughts behind everything. And I, I had this like moment now that I remember that when we first talked, you were talking about how much you were interested and moved um, from organizational behavior and psychology. And you kind of hear it um, through your answers. And how does that kind of mindset help you drive change as a leader or now how does that fit with who you are in this organization or or as a new leader now i'm definitely an agent of change that's my dna and uh that's something i'm quite explicit about when i work for any company and then normally part of the reason why i will go in 
is that's uh, the way our selector company is looking at are they looking to drive change in what they do, whether it's in terms of how they sell their products through to how they engage with customers and, and ultimately the, the environment they create for their employees. So I, I, I definitely am a big fan of organizational behavior and understanding that most businesses are built around 20th century business models. Yeah. If you really look at the core management principles of what run most companies nowadays, most of that thinking was created in the 20th century for companies that were making widgets and manage, managing unskilled labor forces. Yeah. Um, and I think this is part of the problem we have in modern businesses is that especially once they get larger um, in, in nature is that they are very uh, much driven by some antiquated management principles, which are very much operate around a siloed mentality. And that's one of the biggest challenges, you know, for me, then I try to look at, well, how do we, how do we remove those silos? How do we break those silos down? How do we build that? Like I said, that ecosystem type mindset within the business to then help scale our capabilities and really understanding everyone's, and that's where the KPIs become important, understanding everyone's KPIs and how they try to, to align those around a set of core common KPIs. Um, so driving that organizational behavioral change, it takes time though. That's not something you can do in one quarter. It you know, it's a, it's a journey, not a destination as someone famously put it. Um, but I think, yeah, if you want to be successful, you have to get a, a deeper appreciation of organizational behavior. What, how people think, you know, the reality is we're emotional creatures, yeah? Martin Lindstrom in Brandwashed, he wrote a really great book. I remember way back in the day, and he talked about 90% of our decisions being made emotionally, yeah? So we're not that rational <laughs> in a lot of our decision-making. So really understanding what makes, what drives people and how you can influence an organization. That was the other thing in my career. I was never a manager. I was a manager later in my career. Um, one of the benefits I had with working with some of the bigger companies was I had to manage through influence. Yeah. So that's also something I think is a really important skill to pick up. And I would encourage people to think about and explore because if I've got a direct report, I can go to him or her and say, I need you to write this report for me and have it done by next week. And they'll do it. Yeah. Um, but what you want that person to do is do it because they, they, they actually believe in the, why they're doing it. And Learning to influence someone, um, and that gets back to the purpose, you know, having a clear purpose and having passion about what you do and getting that excitement and buzz going. I think if you bring all those elements together, you can really move the needle. I've seen it. Like my past teams, if I look at the output that they produced, um, was was exceptional. I mean, they were punching well above their weights, and, and it was because they really had that clear purpose. They felt empowered. Um, this is another thing I hadn't touched on, but that's another key, I think. I think being able to push decision-making to the edges, yeah? This is another thing I think I've done, I've learned in my career through observations, through other great leaders who've done that with me. Pushing decision-making to the edges, I think, is another great way of getting your business to scale. Too much command and control still operates in, in a lot of businesses. And I think you need a little bit of that, obviously, that there's always going to be, there's a place for that. But I think majority of decision-making, you want to push to the edges. And that's why hiring the right people out of the gate with the right mindset. So if you do that right, you've got the right person, you give them the, the amount of empowerment and the freedom to create, then awesome stuff can happen. You have a long career, uh, hopefully a longer career ahead of you. <laughs> if you had to choose one piece of advice to give to executives, VP people in organizations going through uh, through growth in their company, what would that be? I think the lot, what I just finished on, really looking at how you can empower your teams to make decisions and give them the freedom to create innovation requires the willingness to fail yeah 
you've got to be willing to fail to be able to innovate. No innovation comes throughout without failure, yeah? And this is what I often find quite funny with a lot of senior execs. I say, oh, we need to be innovative, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And I often question them. I'd say, okay, what do you mean by that? Are you asking me to innovate through the lens of being willing for me to fail? Because if you're doing that, I'm, I'm on board, man. I'll test the waters I'll, and I'll learn from those mistakes and apply that to the next iteration of what I'm going to do. But too many businesses don't really want to do that. They, and that's, I think, the leaders that really want to drive change um, and really be memorable. Piggyback on that with a comment, sorry. I know yeah. it's your answer, but I got a comment on that because I yeah. completely relate in my career. One of the things most um, senior leaders or under pressure, by the way, definitely in public traded companies, it's like you got to perform, you got to perform. And in some points, you kind of you, you, you blur the lines between focus on execution and focus on long term innovation. And most organizations and leaders underestimate that getting innovation to generate any business value um, is usually uh, takes longer and more expensive than what you initially thought. 100%. And then you get uh, you get frustrated halfway through. And it's like, well, it's not generating any value. No one's buying it yet. It's, well, it's like we it takes years it's no innovation generates significant impact within months hardly ever and so uh it's a journey to your point and you got to put in the effort and you got to understand is you're walking in that you're walking into a long-term experiment and sometimes it's going to fail fast and it's great because you at least understood fast that it failed but some but generating success is far longer 100 percent, 100 percent. i couldn't agree more i mean one of the beauties just a bit riff off that uh, i guess if you look at it through the marketing lens like which is where I, the world i i operate in um the beauty of digital is that you can test an idea out pretty quickly at, in terms of from a you know message or bit of content etc and so there's innovation of the product obviously what you just spoke to you know that does take certainly um the willingness to, to take a longer term view but the cool thing is with you know like in my field um, you know, if my team comes up with an idea, we can get that in, into market pretty quickly. Um, what all I ask is that you test, learn and adapt. Yeah, that's where, again, I think, you know, you, some oversight initially, if you've got younger ones, they're learning in, that's where you might have a bit more of a um, oversight there. But as you as those individuals build experience and you've got that core competency and mindset in place, then just let them go. And um, as long as they're learning from that and they're applying those lessons, uh, you know, hopefully you're going to move in the right direction. Coming from innovation, from corporate innovation, I couldn't think be more <laughs> smiling away here. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Nicholas. It was a really fascinating conversation um, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. And of course, to all of our listeners, thanks for being here and don't forget to subscribe so you always know when the next episode drops. And me and Shahar, as usual, are already exciting for our next episode. So thank you, everyone. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Ciao.